Amen. Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Colossians again. Colossians, the last of four uh, really short letters from the Apostle Paul, Gentiles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. We will be focusing our attention on verses 15 through 17 this morning. Let's remind ourselves of where we've been. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it is also, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understand uh, and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Clearly, the point of the Apostle Paul this morning in verses 15, 16, and 17 is that Jesus Christ is preeminent. As the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, and the creator of the universe, he deserves to have first place in all things. Psalm 89, verses 26 and 27 say of the Messiah, he shall cry to me, You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Jesus Christ is the highest of the kings of the earth. Every political world leader in the world must one day bow their knee to the authority of the king of kings, Jesus Christ. Now, why does Jesus deserve to have this preeminent position? 
Why does he deserve to have first place? Not only in the world, but in your heart and in my heart. Well, that brings us to our big idea this morning. The simple answer is that because he's the sovereign creator, that's why. This is what we're thinking about this morning. Jesus Christ is the preeminent creator with full authority over every creature. That's another way of saying sovereign. Jesus Christ is the preeminent creator with full authority over every creature and is therefore worthy of our obedience and fullest allegiance. This is who Jesus Christ is, according to the scripture that we are going to focus in on this morning. As I've already said, the word preeminent basically means to have first place. There is no one else above Jesus Christ in power and authority. He is the sovereign God of the universe. He is the sovereign creator who made you and me and everything that we see and even everything that we cannot see, as we will see in a moment. Now, Paul the Apostle was imprisoned in Rome at the time that he received news from a man named Epaphras, who told him uh, about the church at Colossae and how they were being deceived by false teachers who were a mixed breed. They were theological mutts, you might say. Their system of belief was a mixture of Jewish legalism, Greek philosophy, Eastern mysticism, and paganism. And because of this, they believed artificial beliefs about diets and Sabbath days and circumcision, asceticism, which is the the exaltation of withholding stuff from yourself. In other words, you are more spiritual than other people because of what you don't do or you don't partake of, and angel worship. They were Gnostics who believed that all matter was evil and therefore God could not have created it. So they believed God created the spirit world, but God could not have created the physical world because all matter is evil. That then led to some extremely heretical doctrine when it came to the Lord Jesus Christ because they believed if if everything physical is evil, then Jesus Christ cannot be God in human flesh. Instead, they believed that he was merely a spirit that emanated from God. And these false beliefs were infiltrating the church at Colossae. Uh, Colossae, as we learned earlier, is about 80 miles east of Ephesus. It's it's in the region of the world that is now Turkey, so modern-day Turkey. Think of that as being Asia Minor, Colossae, Ephesus, and these other churches that we have letters written to are primarily in that area area of the world. And because of these false doctrines that were infiltrating the church, Christ was being diminished. Christ was being robbed of glory, and this was a massive concern to the apostle. Why? Because we've seen earlier, his passion and desire for them is that they would be rooted and built up in Christ Not rooted and built up in in his opinions or their own opinions, but rooted and built up in Christ. And that is my heart's desire and passion for you, Cornerstone. 
that you would be rooted and built up in Christ, not built up in my opinions and certainly not built up in your opinions or all of our opinions together. All of our opinions even put together are really useless compared to what God's word reveals to us. And so Christ must be always exalted and his word followed. So he was being robbed of glory that rightfully belongs to him as the creator who became the God-man. He's the infinite creator who entered humanity in human flesh to be our redeemer. So Paul's goal here in verses 15, 16, and 17 is to defend the preeminence of Christ. And he does that in two ways. Number one, the preeminence of Christ is seen in his title. He is the image of God. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. The word image in the Greek uh, basically says it shares the reality of what it represents. So he is the image of God because he shares the essence and reality of who he represents, which is God. And so as the second member of the Trinity, he is fully God. And this is the mystery of the Trinity. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all fully God of the same essence and yet different in function, distinct in function, distinct in purpose. Robert Gramacki says this word image was used of the head of the ruler minted on a coin. So the, the face, the head of a, of a political ruler stamped upon a coin. It was also used to describe the idol of the Antichrist and to refer to parental likeness in a child. In each case, he says, the image always pointed to that which upon it was based. So Christ, the image of God, he shares the reality, the essence of who he represents, which is God. Paul makes it clear in verse 15 that Jesus Christ is the image, notice, of the invisible God. It doesn't say he became the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. And so Paul is stressing the fact that Christ's nature is identical to that of the Father whom he represents. And Paul, therefore, is speaking of of an eternal relationship, that eternal relationship of the Father and the Son, and of course also of the Spirit. Invisible. Well, what does invisible mean? It means not capable of being seen. So it's speaking of God as being the unseen one. And yet there's something that makes us really uncomfortable as as human beings. We like things we can see, right? Um, Problem with that is that throughout biblical history, that has led men and women to create false gods things that they can see with their physical eyes as opposed to truth they can behold with their spiritual eyes. Uh, Look for, uh, as one example, Psalm 115. Psalm 115. You'll notice this pattern that is found throughout the scriptures. You see this in the history of Israel. 
But obviously it's not only Israel who has a problem with this. All human beings do, including ourselves. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Idols, false gods, things that we can see. Look at verse 8. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Verse 8 is a fundamental biblical concept. That is, you make your idols, and then your idols make you. That's what he's saying. We make our idols, and then our idols make us. We worship something, and then it demands slavery. It demands worship back from us. And that is what was true here. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Where the rubber meets the road for us is the things that take preeminence in our lives and in our hearts enslave us. If it's not Christ. If there's anything that has first place in your heart or my heart above Jesus Christ. In other words, if if Jesus is in second place because something else is in first place. Then that is an idol and that idol will control you. You have made that idol. And now that idol is making you. You see that in every form of addiction whether it's drugs or alcohol or food or pornography or you name it, you make your idol and your idol will make you. It will control you. So this is a human problem. We like things we can see. (laughs) You know, we're all Missourians. Show me, you know. I want to see something. Show me. Rather than just taking God at his word, believing that what he has said to us is true. Well, God is spirit and not body. And, and, and that's why we worship an invisible God. And yet God in his grace <laughs> sends the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of God, who is the image of the invisible God. And he makes God visible. So the concept of image here reveals two truths about Jesus. First, image reveals his deity. We've talked about this already. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. For example, John 1, 18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has made him known. Jesus Christ is fully God who is making the Father known. Jesus asked in, in John 14, 9, um, 
He says to Philip, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? When people were looking at the Lord Jesus Christ, they were looking at God. Manifest in human form. So as the image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ reveals his deity. He is fully God. Uh, Secondly, it reveals his humanity. That Jesus is the manifestation of deity in human flesh. And this was the problem that Paul was confronting in Colossae, that that people were saying that can't be true. It, It can't be that Jesus is God because he's a human being. They were assaulting a fundamental doctrine of Christianity. You cannot be a Christian, biblically speaking, without believing that Jesus Christ is both God and man. It's impossible, according to the Bible, to be a saved person and reject the doctrine of Jesus Christ being both God and man. Deity and humanity are married in the person of Jesus Christ. And and that is what makes it possible for Jesus to be our Savior. That's what qualifies him to be our Savior. And then his work is what qualifies us to be in his kingdom, which we learned a couple weeks ago, verse 12. The Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Why? Because when we come to Jesus, we are united to him by faith, and so we are in union with him, and because he is qualified, we are qualified. The eternal Son of God became flesh to reveal God to us, but also to die for us, to die in our place as a fully human, yet perfect, sinless sacrifice. Hebrews 2 makes this clear, 2.14. Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. The Son of God had to become humanity so that he could die. Because from the very beginning in Genesis 3, death was the punishment for sin. And so he took our punishment. He died in our place. And so only this God-man is qualified to be our redeemer. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He is fully God, veiled in humanity. There's a a second way that we see the preeminence of Christ here in this passage, and that is this. The preeminence of Christ is seen in his work as the creator of all. So now Paul lifts him up, not only as the image of the invisible God, but as the creator. And he shows five ways that Christ is preeminent as the creator. First, he is superior to all creation. He is superior to all creation. So the preeminence of Christ is seen in his work as the creator of all. 
Paul refers to him here in verse 15 as the firstborn of all creation. Well, what does that mean, firstborn? It does not mean he was the first creature made, which is what Jehovah's Witnesses teach. The Jehovah Witness religion pulls verse 15 completely out of its context and says, see, Jesus is not God. Jesus is the first creature made. He's the firstborn. Failing to go on to the very next verse, which defines it for us. Firstborn is a term speaking of his position, not the order of anything. He is superior. And so firstborn is used in the very common biblical sense of rank and sovereignty. So the firstborn is the heir. He is the preeminent one. You have a number of examples in the Bible. For example, Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac held the blessed position of firstborn, though Ishmael was actually older. Ishmael was born first, yet Isaac was the firstborn. Rank, privilege, position, Same is true of Esau and Jacob, Reuben and Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim. And in um, Exodus 4.22, God calls Israel his firstborn, though there are a lot of nations that existed before she did. So this is an issue of superiority. He is superior to all creation. Well, why is he superior to all of creation? Because he's the creator, because he's made it. The one who made it is superior to it. Look with me at the, at the first chapter of Romans. You can see how absolutely crucial this is to understand and embrace the truth of God as creator, Jesus Christ, the one who is superior to all. In Romans 1, what Paul does here is he describes how the rejection of honoring God as the creator begins a downward spiral into idolatry. And here you're going to see very clearly into the idolatry that is right now in the news all of the time. It's taking over our culture. Look at it um, in verse 18. Starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Okay, so the truth of God is suppressed. One example of this is the false doctrine of evolution. Which now we're seeing some of the fruits of that false doctrine of evolution, which suppresses the truth. What truth? That God is the creator of all. And so it's held down. By what? By the lie of evolution. But what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. In other words, the heavens declare the glory of God. I mean, look at creation. Look at the intricacies of creation. Look at the creation of the eyeball. I mean, look at the the creation of an insect. Look at anything. And you see the brilliance of an infinite designer. No way. 
random chance, things blowing up in space, or crawling out of a slime pit four billion years ago, can become what we see and what we are as creatures. For his invisible attributes, verse 20, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, so here's the downward spiral. God is rejected as creator. That leads to a darkening of the human mind. Okay, can't see things the way they really are. You then claim that you are wise, but you've actually become a fool. And you've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, as this downward spiral continues, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, see, that's where it started, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And the list just goes on. It all begins with a rejection of God as creator. When you reject Jesus Christ as the sovereign creator, that gives you free license to do anything you want, anything your rebellious heart wants to do. Because now there's no external authority in your life. You are now your own authority. And, and so at its basis level, the LGBTQ plus movement of our day stems from this. It stems from a rejection of God as the creator. And the spiral goes. Because once you reject the authority of Jesus Christ, the creator, then you're free to do whatever your rebellious heart wants to do. And the unsaved world will fully get behind you and reinforce your lies and tell you to cancel anyone who dares to tell you the truth. You don't like it that God made you a girl? Fine. Go have top surgery. You don't like it that God made you a boy? Fine. Go get castrated. Follow your heart. See where it leads. Follow the human heart? I'll tell you where it leads. Romans 1 tells you where it leads. It leads to destruction It leads to endless disappointment. 
It leads to depression. It leads to suicide. It leads to everything away from God. Pointlessness, hopelessness. Make no mistake, dishonoring your body as good and as a splendid creation of God will lead you into idolatry. It will lead you into false worship. You know, we have a mirror in God's word. Psalm 139, you look into the mirror of God's word and what does it say about our bodies? We are fearfully and wonderfully made. In it, how often do we look into a mirror on the wall and we say, you are fearful and poorly made. Which mirror are you going to believe? The mirror of God's truth or the mirror created by your own mind and heart? God has made us good. The original creation was good. Our bodies are good in the eyes of God. When was the last time you thought about that? Now, sin has corrupted everything in our world and has led to the falling apart of our bodies, the older we get. (laughs) But its essence is still very good. Because it's created in the image of God. It's fearfully and wonderfully made. It is not fearful and poorly made. See, when we believe these lies of the world, we play right into the hands of Satan who wants to entrap us in deception. Because one of the chief ways that Satan opposes God's work is by casting doubt on his goodness and the goodness of his creation. He is the sovereign creator. He is superior to all. Thankfully, the good news of the scriptures is that this creator has also become our redeemer. He is the cure to our rebellious heart. And he's the one who changes us. So don't fall prey to the lies of the world which are empowered by the devil. Believe God's word. It will never fail you. Boys and girls, listen to me. God made you a boy or a girl and that is very, very good. He has a beautiful design and plan for you. Do not let the world say, oh, you're not a boy, you're not a girl, maybe you're transgender. Look in the mirror and Your biological body parts will tell you what you are, what God made you to be. Transgenderism is not reality. It is science fiction. And how many children in our day are being led away from the goodness, the good creation that God made, and the spiral just goes down. And all the while, Satan is clapping his hands. He's so cheerful about it. He loves deceiving people. So Jesus Christ is superior to all creation. Let's go back to Colossians. Notice, secondly, that he is the agent of all creation. I remember the first time I studied this um, passage and I came to realize that, that 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was present in Genesis. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all present in the, in the work of creation. And we know this because the uh, Gospel of John says that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Word of God. He's the Logos. He's the divine speech of God. And so when in Genesis, when we see this pattern that God spoke, God said, God said, God said, guess who was saying? Guess who was speaking? The second member of the Trinity. And then the Holy Spirit was hovering over the surface of the deep. All three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, involved in creation. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. By the word of God. That's amazing. Nine times in Genesis 1 it says, then God said. And every day, at the close of every day of the six days, what did God say? He looked at his creation and he said, it is what? Good. It is good. John 1, 3, all things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, notice what all things includes, verse 16, for by him... By him, by Christ, all things were created. So he's the agent of creation in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So the things that we can see were created by the Son of God and the things we cannot see. What are some of those? Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. The demonic realm. The realm of the demons is invisible. We can't see it. And yet it's part of the creation that is subject to the creator. And somehow, even all of the evil that they accomplish is somehow serving God's big picture plan. How's that for mystery? Satan and his demons do their most effective work at the level of what you cannot see. That's what Ephesians 6 teaches us. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the armor of God. Stand firm. Stand firm in the truth of God's word. But this should encourage us that Jesus Christ has authority over the devil and his minions. All of those powers and authorities are subject to Christ. He rules over the spirit world because he is the agent of creation. Thirdly, he is the goal of creation. All things were created through him, agency, and what? For him. The Son of God is the goal of creation. In other words, the glory of the Son of God is the goal of all creation. Even Jewish rabbis taught that the world was created for the Messiah. Their, the minds of their hearts are just blinded as to who that Messiah is. In his Bible study, Captivated by Christ, Richard Chin writes this, God didn't create the world because he was lonely or because he needed somebody to love. 
God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have been in perfect loving relationship with each other since before time began. Every created thing, listen to this, every created thing, including you and me, is the overflow of God's love for his Son. Remember we saw a couple weeks ago, we're in the, now in the kingdom of what? His beloved son. Chin goes on to say, everything visible, including you and me, was made for Jesus as an overflow of the father's love for the son. The father loves the son with an eternal, immeasurable love, and your existence and my existence is an overflow of that. That's the realm in which we were created. That's the realm in which we live. In the overflow of the Father's love for his Son. That's what John 17 says. Believers are a gift from the Father to the Son. All began with Christ and all will end with Christ. That's what Paul teaches in Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So you need to understand that everything in the universe, everything, is steadily moving toward the ultimate glorification of God and his son of love. The glory of Christ is the goal of creation. That is why he created you. He created you as an overflow of his love for his son to bring glory to the son. Why is it then that so often we live for the glory of ourselves? Three-letter answer, S-I-N. That's why. But Christ came to change that. Christ didn't just come to put a ticket to heaven in our back pocket for when we die. He came to totally revolutionize our existence. Completely transform us to live for a whole new purpose and a new Lord. This is why he created you. Do you you believe this? And if you believe it, do you live like you believe it? Fourthly, he existed before all creation. Look at verse 17. And he is before all things. (laughs) He himself, he and no other is what that means. Is before all things. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That's why Isaiah prophesied that one of the names the Messiah would be given is wonderful father. He's he's so co-equal with the father that he would actually share a name, eternal. Jesus, when he gave the Apostle John the book of uh, the Revelation, he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is what really ticked off the Jewish leaders. When he was making statements that implied that he existed before Abraham did, and there were, They're like, you're a lunatic. You are nuts. 
And he said, before Abraham was, I am. And they completely lost it. They completely lost it. They picked up stones to throw at him, and he disappeared, hid himself. Wouldn't accept Jesus Christ for who he is, the eternal creator. And then fifthly, he is the sustainer of all creation. I love this. I love this because sometimes don't you feel like the world is spinning out of control? (laughs) I mean, watch CNN for 10 minutes and that's enough for 10 years. All things hold together. All things consist. All things cohere. All things stick. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. By the word of his power. I mean, think about it. You know, on day seven of creation week work, what did God do? He rested. And what happened to the world that he created? Did it spin out of control? Did it cease to exist? No. Why? Because it was being held together by the sustainer who is the son of God who holds all things together by the word of his power. If the Son of God stopped sustaining his creation, you and I would cease to exist. We would evaporate. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did not sustain his creation by the word of his power. So what's the point? The point of these verses is that Jesus Christ is the sovereign creator and is therefore worthy of our full obedience and complete allegiance. I am afraid that some of you don't believe this. I am afraid that some of you don't believe that you have to obey Christ. And one reason is this. You believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior, but you do not believe that he first was your sovereign creator. And you love the fact that he's your Savior. You love the fact that you're forgiven. But you're not interested in living under the authority of the one who made you. But we need to understand that he has sovereign authority over every area of our life. He has had sovereign authority over our life since the moment we were conceived. Because he made us. And so now, if you know Christ as your Savior and Lord, guess what you have? You have a a double authority over your life. First, as your creator. Second, as your redeemer. He purchased our life with his blood. We saw that last week. And all of that leads to numerous implications for a life that is governed by worship. The worship of Christ. And you see this in the book of of the Revelation in chapter 4. 
Christ is worshiped. Why? Because he is the creator. Worthy art thou, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you did create all things. Because of your will, they existed. Revelation 5, Jesus is worthy of your life's worship because he is your redeemer. The the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. They sang a new song saying, worthy art thou to take the book and break its seals for thou wast slain and did purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And Jesus is worthy of your life's worship because he is the sovereign Lord. He's the creator who became the redeemer and he now occupies a place of lordship that one day every knee that has ever been created will have to bow before this God, this supreme preeminent Christ. And declare that he is Lord. Richard Chin writes this. Every atom, every molecule, and every strand of DNA, not to mention every star and every galaxy, have Jesus to thank not only for their existence, but for their ongoing existence. Jesus sustains them all through every nanosecond of every day. Without his active sustaining power, creation would disintegrate. We would disintegrate. Without Christ as creator, as a preeminent one, you and I would cease to exist. In fact, we wouldn't have even existed in the first place. And without him as the redeemer, the evil one would have kept us entrapped in his world of lies. But praise God, there is new freedom, new freedom in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for bringing us face to face with the glories of Jesus today. He is the one who is the preeminent one. He should have first place. He already occupies first place according to you. He now needs to occupy first place in our hearts, in our lives, in the life of worship. Not only when we sing songs of worship to you, but every day, every moment of our lives, every nanosecond that we continue to exist is because Jesus Christ who created us also sustains us by the word of his power. God, bring forth from our lives the kind of praise and worship and adoration and obedience and full allegiance that Jesus Christ alone deserves. We are unworthy sinners, Lord, but Christ, according to your word, has made us worthy. And we now stand before you in him. And we want our lives to be a reflection of the glory of Jesus Christ, who is first our creator and now also our redeemer. In his name we pray, amen.